0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go
1: to IFHpodcastnetwork.com.
2: Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 259. The farther backward you can look, the farther forward you're likely to see. Winston Churchill.
1: Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting, while teaching you how to
0: make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari.
2: Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Now before we begin, guys, I wanted to let you know about a free class that I am offering to anyone interested in film distribution. It's called the Film Distribution Crash Course. And in this crash course, I show you the top five distribution agreements and pitfalls to avoid when working with a traditional distributor. I discuss what a standard deal looks like, gross versus net profits, distribution expenses, windowing strategies, and how to increase leverage with a distributor. If you want to get access, all you have to do is head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash free. Now, today's episode is going to be a crossover event between Indie Film Hustle and Filmtrepreneur
0: because this week I'm a little bit, uh, it's a little bit hectic, so I wanted to at least release a new episode on both of those shows as well as there will be a new Bulletproof
2: Screenwriting Podcast this week as well. So this
0: episode, guys, is epic. We have returning champion film finance expert, Frank Osama. Now, Franco's first
2: show that I did with him back in 2017, episode 202,
0: is one of the most downloaded episodes in the history of the show, and with good reason. The first show was called Film Financing
2: and How to Raise Real Money for Your Indie Film. And today's
0: episode is all about how to raise money in today's crazy upside-down world. Franco is on the front
2: lines of film financing, how to get your films distributed, what film investors are looking for, how to approach them, how to package things for them, uh, the whole ball of wax. And he's really heavily into education and educating people as much as humanly possible because he's seen so many filmmakers fail because of just their approaches, how they package things. And also, we, we sit down and talk about the pandemic, the crisis, the economic crisis that's happening, how this event is going to shape Hollywood, what studios are vulnerable for collapse. Um, it's a very interesting time we're living in, boys and girls. Very, very interesting. And Franco and I sit down and just have an epic conversation. So, it is a master class on what to do, how to raise money in today's world, and a little bit of predictions of what will happen in the coming months and years to our industry and how we can better prepare ourselves to not only survive, but to thrive in the new film economy and the new economy in general that is coming towards us. Very, very fast. So without any further ado, please enjoy my epic conversation with Franco Sama. I'd like to welcome back to the show, returning champion Franco Sama. How are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing great, Alex. How about yourself?
2: Um, well, you know, it's it's a it's a weird time in the world, it's an interesting time in the world right now. We're all locked up here, uh self-quarantining <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's a weird time, we're going to talk a little bit about the weird time as well. But uh, you, we were just talking off air, and it's been last time you were on the show was episode. I don't. I forgot what the episode it was, but it was twenty seventeen. Um, That's right. And uh, it was one of the more popular episodes we've ever done. And I know you and I have joked over the course of the last two years that you are now a celebrity at AF, at, at AFM, at film markets, at a film festivals. People walk up to you and say, "Aren't you the guy from Indie Fumos
1: podcast?" They do, <laughs> they, and they still do. It happened two weeks ago. <laughs> it is,
2: it is, it's, and you always, like I was saying, you always give the best stories because it's never just like a a guy just randomly meeting you. Like it, there's always a situation, whether it's the place or whether it's the people yeah. involved, and there's always a character involved. <laughs>
1: And I got to tell you, it really makes my life interesting because <laughs> other than that, my life isn't that interesting, but it's so cool because I, it's so unexpected for me you know I've never had that in my whole life like people you know i've I've always people have known me sort of on my work, sure, but they they sure. they've never known the face behind it, you know they just know the the name or the or the company or something, but for somebody to literally walk up to me either out of market or In just the general public population and recognize me and not only recognize me, these guys can actually quote me like they know some of my catchphrases. And and it's freaky. It's almost like it feels a little stalkery. You know, it's like, how do you know so much about me? But I'm very flattered every time it happens. I really am. And I'm very grateful that that. Well, first of all, what I'm really happy about is that they are hearing the message, you know, And that they're able, that they're receiving the message, because that's why I do this, right? What isn't that why any of us do this? Is we, you know, to go out into the world and speak on these types of issues around our business and our industry and financing, and the whole point is to educate people, so help them not make these gigantic mistakes that could potentially end their careers before they even have one, and to begin with.
3: Mm -hmm, And mm
1: -hmm. I, and I. I've been that guy, number one, and I was lucky to get out of it. And I've seen it so many times. So when I hear that and I know that people are listening to you and they're listening to me and they're hearing what we have to say and that they're actually taking that information seriously and, and, and implementing it into their, into their work and into their lives, it's, there's no greater compliment for me.
2: You are by far the most recognizable film finance guy in L.A. There's no question about it. <laughs> They can you you can't even walk AFM without being a uh, being attacked three four five times every second. Yeah. So it's <laughs>
1: yeah. at one point it all happened at one at one time, and I'm telling you, uh, the people that I was hanging out with for sure were convinced that I was running around handing out hundreds and telling <laughs> these people to come up and pretend. Yeah. To know. And because it, it was so it was just so weird, it was very very. That was a little uncomfortable because it literally happened like with four different people within a span of about an hour, and uh, that was just a coincidence. But it was uh, that was when I really uh, my eyes opened. I went, "Wow, this medium is so powerful. It's incredible." I do. I do want to catch the work that you do because it's not just you know when I talk to people about indie film hustle, you know we get into these conversations about all of the work that you do and. The oh, different man. you know podcasts that they've heard and the value that they get out of that, and so I'm always encouraging people number one, get on board with Alex and um and I mean it. I don't just say it because I'm so grateful for our relationship, but uh because it's true.
2: I pray, I appreciate that, franco. I appreciate that and you and you are uh, you know, you're a straight shooter uh, in, in the world of film finance there's okay. not man, there's not many of you out there. Uh, I call you a unicorn. Yeah. There's unicorns out there. There's just very special, unique, you know, limited amounts of people in certain areas of our business, and you are definitely one of them. So, so let's get into it today, my friend. You know, a lot has changed since 2017, uh, a lot. Yes. Uh, back then, uh, back then, it's two years ago, but back then, you know, SVOD was all the rage, uh, you know, and, and OTT was going to be the big thing, and and now it's AVOD, Um and the, there, was, there was no Disney+, Plus, there was no HBO Max, there was no Peacock, there was no, I mean, Tubi was yeah. barely getting off the ground. Pluto was, you know, just coming up as well. So in the current marketplace, well, first of all, you know, we'll talk about the elephant in the room, which is, uh, as of this recording, the virus is affecting a lot of people around the
0: world. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: And is yes. I just did an I just did an episode this week about how the coronavirus is actually affecting our industry. And we've lost you know lost I think in China they lost two billion dollars in revenue worldwide, already four billion in revenue. Um, and, and it's no, no, no stop in sight. Like literally China right now, which is, I think, is it the second or the first biggest market? I'm not sure now. I don't know if it overtook the U S or not, but they shut down 70,000 screens. They they shut down their, their box office, which is decimating a very fragile and honestly, in my opinion, vulnerable film industry, which I feel that the China market has been propping up. The losses that they have occurred from DVDs and all the other foreign sales and all these other things that were there before have been taken away over the years. And China was kind of like bubbling it up a little bit, but then all of a sudden it's gone, and everyone's like, "Oh crap!" So how do you how do you see this affecting our marketplace moving forward in twenty twenty?
1: Well, I mean, absolutely, the rug has been pulled out from underneath the industry. I mean, not certainly just our industry, but every industry mm-hmm. worldwide. It's a, it's a, it's you know, I, the consequences of what is occurring right now is going to probably impact us for the next decade. Mm-hmm. That, that's, what I believe, and <clears throat> I we will get past it. We do, yeah, we always do. Yes, you know, we get through thing but it really is gonna require a a readjust, a major readjust, almost potentially a complete paradigm shift um, in the way we do business. Um, I mean, the good news prior to this event of the virus is that because of all of these emerging emerging sort of marketplaces, content is now much more valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Because I remember back when I was first starting off you know, you're trying to get knocked down a door to get somebody to pay attention to you because you had something, a project that you wanted to bring in. And people would just slam the door on you and get out of here, kid, you know. Mm. Um, But those roles have reversed quite a bit now. And content is king. And there's so much space now that needs to be filled with content. So that puts the creative people uh, in a a better position in terms of that. Uh, But then the question is, you know, now the throngs of possibilities how do you penetrate that Mm -hmm. how do you penetrate that because now you've got a billion times more competition than you used to have so even though there's more opportunity and access um it's still sort of a funnel and you know somebody's getting stuck in the. you know there's only a few people coming through that from everybody that's pouring into it so i think Honestly, more than ever, you know, this, this business has always been a business of relationships and you and I are a testament to that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, and not just you and I, but all of the people that you and I have in common in our circle, mm-hmm. you know, that we all see each other at all the events in our little kind of clan. Right. Right. Well, that's the core of the independent of the independent film world, at least here in LA. And I think that, if, uh, especially somebody new. Um, They have to really focus on um, building those internal relationships um, and finding the good guys. Right. Because there's a lot of not good guys Mm -hmm. out there, Uh, you know, by being able to identify those people and stay with them and work hard. To make sure that they nurture and maintain those relationships over a long period of time, because this is the long game. This whole industry is about playing the long game. So if anybody's in it for a quick anything, you know, it's a quick buck, or they want to get famous, you know, quickly, or they want to win an Oscar in the first film, that's not the mindset. It just isn't. You know, you're right. not see that every day. Um, that's, can't be the mindset, you know, there's nothing wrong with having that kind of ambition and dream, but you also have to have your feet in reality and grounded. And, uh, and I think that, you know, as long as people stay close to, uh, people like us who are in it for the right reasons and have, and have all of the, the right intentions. And like you said earlier, I'm a straight shooter. You know, I tell people things they don't want to hear every single day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And you know what? And I'm proud of that because I know that they're going, Oh, oh, harsh, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm doing it because a, I have haven't got time to, for BS. I just don't, I got 12 films in production, just came out of <clears throat> uh, principal photography. <clears throat> i got a million things going on right now. So the last thing I have time for is to babysit for somebody, right? Uh, Uh, And to hold somebody's hand. Now I am willing to take my time and work with somebody over the long haul, but they have to be doing the the heavy lifting at the end of the day. They have to make their contribution, especially if it's their, their film. There's so many people that come to people like me and and they have an expectation, which is already a a problem. They have an expectation that they're going to be able to hand something over to me and that I'm going to do it for them or take it from there. And it's the complete opposite. I will help empower them to do it themselves um, and give them the tools and the resources and the knowledge and the information and whatever it is that they need for that. But I'm, I'm not, I don't work for them and they don't work for me. It's a, right. That's what a collaboration is. You know? So as far as the global market is concerned, I really think it's kind of a wait and see. I think we've got to kind of wait and see how this thing flushes out. Uh, You know, with the, for example, uh, South by Southwest being canceled was a major, major, major blow. You know, we're talking about $365 million in revenue. The potential um, is just wiped. And I'm working with a couple of uh, organizations that I'm affiliated with to try to help uh, potentially screen some of these filmmakers films that would have gone there here in L.A. Mm -hmm. So that at least kind of give them a little bit of a leg up. Because yeah. I know that these filmmakers must be crushed. I mean, I your-
2: can you imagine spending your whole, like, you like, I got in a South by. Like, I my film got in a South, and then all of a sudden, it's canceled because of a virus scare. Uh, I can't even imagine. I can't even
1: imagine. I can't, I can't either. It's got to be gut-wrenching. And, you know, it could be, for some people, it could be uh, an insurmountable problem. You know, something that they they may never recover from, because... They might have all their eggs in that one basket, which oh, was yeah. another problem. Yeah. but um, so that's why I'm saying we're going to try to at least do something. I don't know yet. We've got a couple of you know organizations uh, that I belong to. You know, I'm a, I'm a, um on the board of directors at New Filmmakers Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. We're talking about partnering with some other groups here in LA, uh, and 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 um, combining our resources in terms of theaters and space. And being able to get some of these films shown, at least here in LA, for audiences, uh, despite the fact that they're not going to be able to compete in the festival.
2: Yeah, and I know RB, our, our mutual fan, RB Botto, from Stage Thirty Two, he's trying to do something as well to help those filmmakers as well. Uh, be
1: one of those partners that we're,
2: we'll be working with. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 de- it's devastating. It's devastating. Um, now, I, I've been I've been yelling from the top of the mountain now for a while saying, hey, guys, um, right now things are getting really tight as far as the mid-level and lower-level distributors. They're getting more predatory. Um, you know, There's always good guys, but there's a lot of bad guys out there in that world. And we're in a, we were in a fairly good economic time. And I go, wait until the fit hits the shan, and all of a sudden things start tightening and we saw it in 08. I mean, you go back to 08, you start seeing companies start falling left and right because they were fragile in this in the in the in the in the first place. Do you see, you know, obviously as of this recording, the market has had one of the worst weeks few like last two weeks since 2008. A lot of people are saying that this is the first signs of something going to happen. Uh, we're due. We're late. Uh, we're late for something to happen. Do you feel? I'd love to hear your opinion. Do you feel that some of the studios uh, and there's only a handful of big studios left? But do you think of the studios and also some of these larger distributors are vulnerable because they're 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 fragile in the first place because they're not diversified? Like Disney, we're good. Disney's going to be fine. You know, Warner's will probably be fine. Universal will probably be fine. But they're super diversified. Where some of the other studios aren't, and especially these distribution companies who are not diversified at all, and they're just they're just making the money with distribution. If those channels start like what we were just talking about, like China shuts down, and then all of a sudden the foreign market shuts down, all of a sudden all this all this flow ends. Do you feel that there's going to be a a reckoning, if you will, in our industry?
1: I do, I do, I do. And and you know, I have to say this is a very unpopular position.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
1: But as bad as that is and is probably going to be, the industry really needs a purge. And this might be that opportunity. I believe this is the, you know, Phoenix rising, because what's going to emerge from that catastrophic event is going to be a, a new perspective and a new way of doing things because, you know, I've been saying for a long time, I, I kept predicting about five years ago, I was started predicting that the, the overall model of the sales, of more the sales companies as opposed to the actual distributors, right? The sort of middlemen the, between the film.
2: The middlemen the, the middle the, of the middlemen of the middlemen, Right. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's where the, all the breakdown is, right? I mean, here you have all these filmmakers, myself included, who spend, you know, years of their lives and dedicate, you know, ten thousands uh, thousands, if not millions, of dollars in, in, in getting investment and doing everything they're supposed to do. They do it all right, not always. I mean, people make mistakes, but it, for those who who do go down the path and and actually produce uh, a quality film that. Have, deserves to be seen in the world. And then they go into the distribution market and they get crushed.
2: <laughs> Decimated.
1: They get crushed. And as a result of that, it's a domino effect backwards now because the the sales companies, you know, some of them uh, are, are doing sales, re, re, recovering uh, proceeds and not paying out. You know about that, right? And then there are others um, that are just in it for the for the upfront marketing fees. And once mm-hmm. they collect their fees, they lose interest in the film and they move on to the next one and then that one after that. So they're in the marketing fee collection business as opposed to the distribution of film business. Mm-hmm. And I've been saying for five years now, that's going to implode. At some point, it's going to come back and bite them because instead of having the mindset of, wait wait a minute, if we take care of these people, these Talented, seriously. Right. If we no, I, I agree talented, with you. These talented, you know, young, talented, uh, entrepreneurial filmmakers that really have their act together and have the resources and the wherewithal to go out there and figure out how to raise two million bucks to make the movie in the first place, and then they make a great movie, right? Wouldn't it be of us to like build a long term relationship with these people and make sure that those and filmmakers are able to return those investments to their Uh, to their investors and make with profit, so that those investors will continue to keep investing in them and we can continue to prosper and grow. Unfortunately, in the vast majority of the cases, that's not the case (laughs) because the mindset, it just isn't. I know. And you know, like I said, I'm very unpopular position to be taking, but the mindset is more along the lines of there'll be another one right behind you. Correct. There's a long line that's never going to end, and you know what? We're, we'll, we're going to do what we're going to do. We're going to get make this money, and good luck on your film uh, and with your investors. And unfortunately, if that falls off the wayside, there's there's going to be 100 more filmmakers in that line trying to get that same deal that looks on the surface like a great opportunity um, mm-hmm. and then turns out not to be. So I've been saying for a very long time that that has got – that will – self implode like Mm -hmm. it can't sustain itself it can't be sustainable and to to your point unfortunately i think this could be a sign that you know those those are the most likely of the people they're going to probably be the ones to fall by the wayside Mm -hmm. uh and uh when Mm -hmm. when uh, the dust settles and everybody kind of comes back out of the ether and from whatever is going to be occurring over the next year or two, I think there is going to be a a whole new uh, way of looking at this thing and finding. I mean, even now, some of the deals I'm working on, you know, we're working on um, a couple. of, I have a couple of film funds that I'm building in, mm-hmm. you know, the name of the company, and uh, and I'm consulting on other on others, and I'm telling these people. You know, that that it we can't go out and raise all these millions of dollars and then dump it over, or hand it over to some third party that's going to take the lion's share and leave us hanging, especially now if we're the investors and it's our money. So we're looking at ways to be able to minimize that. One of those ways is to reduce that marketing fee down to only like t- about $10,000, mm-hmm. which, which is nothing and,
2: in, th- in the grand scope of things. Yeah.
1: But imagine, you know, taking what is traditionally a 50, 60, I've seen 85000 100,
2: 150, I've 100. seen 200. Oh, yeah.
1: Ridiculous. And it's and it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Just imagine if that number was capped at like 15,000, you know? Um, so those are the little things that, you know, that we're trying to do internally here. And that's why I said, goes back to my point earlier about new filmmakers or even current filmmakers, Staying close to people like us who are fighting every day and working towards coming up with solutions for some of these things so that even when the bottom falls out of this thing, you know, there'll be a small pe- group of people who will be able to survive it and, and, and actually, um, you know, exceed uh, expectations from there.
2: I mean in 08, when did Netflix start, like net, the streaming side of Netflix? It was around 08, 09, 010, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. It was That's one of the beginning stages of streaming, which was horrible at the time, obviously. But that's when yeah. it started. And Netflix came out of – the streaming side of Netflix came out of the 08 thing. And look how that completely transformed our industry. And there, there, every once in a while, there needs to be a purge. And I agree with you. I, I, I 100% agree with you. I hundred percent think there needs to be a wiping of the slate in many ways if the companies are yeah. strong and they have good business yeah. models that can sustain yeah.
1: hits then right and, and ethical and ethical then correct they, Then they'll survive then correct they'll survive they have always they have a better chance of surviving and, you know it's interesting you bring up Netflix because I remember you know in those days m- me personally my company we we made vast majority of our money back then on DVDs, right? What just
2: is this D- What is what is block-
1: what is it what is the DVD? What, what <laughs> these you- yeah, have the thing. But anyway, uh
2: coasters. They but, look like coasters. It, yeah, got it.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's what they are now. <laughs> that's what we use them for now. But anyway, um yeah, we you know that was in the DVD days, right? When when as a distributor or a sales company we have these really ex- exorbitant, uh, exorbitant uh, hard costs, right? Because we're going to bring a film out to market and it's going to go to like Walmart and all these places, but m- mostly in those days to Blockbuster and the, in the and all of those thousands and thousands of other chain, you know, Hollywood
2: Video, to, you know, West Coast Video, yeah, all those guys, yeah. yeah.
1: So there was a the hard cost associated with that, that we had a cover or the distributor had a cover and it was expensive because now you had to print every one of those things. Then you had to package it. You, you now you have the artwork, you have the plastic, and then you had the shipping. And what a lot of people don't realize is back then, if we got an order for 20,000 DVDs of our movie to Walmart, uh, in 90 days, if uh, Walmart wanted to, they could charge us back and send back 9,000 of those 10,000 orders, and we'd have already cashed the check. <laughs> so we'd have to now be on the hook for all of those DVDs that they, that they rejected that never got sold. So that was a huge problem. So what was interesting about Netflix is, you know, at the time, remember, they were delivering the DVD to your home.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it was great because you still got that thing, that disc, but you didn't have to go anywhere to go get it. And from a distribution standpoint, from our standpoint, we were covering maybe the mailing costs of it because they came in the little sleeve. Right. So there was a lot of that other uh, uh, cost was eliminated. But then when they switched over to streaming and the DVD just went out of style, um, that changed everything completely because now there is zero cost. There's, There's nothing- zero hard cost. There's nothing to charge back. And so now that profit margin significantly increased, and essentially we're still there today with, with what's but, going on with VOD. But
2: it's it significantly increased, but the money that you can get for your film it, it completely decreased dramatically. So the cost. Well, so, like perfect perfect example, though before DVD would cost you fifteen bucks, right? Yeah. And now yeah. a movie costs you free, if it's on Prime. Yeah or if it's on yeah. part of your streaming service. So the devaluization has is, is really hurt the filmmaker in many
1: ways, correct? 100%. I mean, it was five or six dollars just to rent it for the night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. <laughs> and
2: I know if, yeah. and even before that, the VHS, don't forget, you used to get charged if you didn't rewind. Be kind. Rewind.
1: Yeah, it used to get charged. <laughs> Be kind. Rewind. That was. The-
2: <laughs> Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I worked in a video store. I remember it was. I and I, I pissed people off dramatically. Like, yeah. sorry, I got to charge you an extra bucks. You didn't rewind
3: it.
1: Oh. <laughs> or if you were a day late. So I, I remember going out at three o'clock in the morning and sticking in that little slot they had. that would drop into the trash basket. So it would be there in the morning so I wouldn't get charged for the next day.
2: It's, it's, I mean, we were barbarians. Let's just put it out that we were barbarians. We were just like, just.
1: Uh. I was just talking to a filmmaker the other day about this and saying, look, you know, for the, for the people coming up, the young kids coming up, right. You, you know, today is like a, such a different conversation. I mean, in terms, you know, when I started, somebody asked me what about the origins of p like, mm-hmm. you know, why do they call it p and A? I I said, because back then when I started, the P was prints. Mm-hmm. And the print was a 35 millimeter reel that was this gigantic. And you usually needed two for each film because the film didn't fit on one. And we used to have to deliver them and get into a van and bring them to the theater to bring them up into the uh, screening room mm-hmm. on, at every theater. They what was deliver. it? What, a print. A
2: print. I know. If I remember correctly, uh, it would be like a twenty thousand dollar cost or fifteen thousand dollar cost, right?
1: Very, very expensive. Per
2: yeah. print. Per print. And where n- now you could literally upload it, and they can download yeah. it for free, essentially.
1: Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Or now you can you can literally walk into a theater with a USB and here's my movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, but, but but I remember those days. I remember literally physically delivering those huge 35 millimeter prints really heavy and on the thick film. And it was it was a very cool thing. But, yeah, when you talk about that kind of money for every single theater, it was it was just it was so hard to make money. It was, you know, because that was your that was just your delivery cost to get it in there.
2: That was the cost, that was your, you needed, you have to look at the ROI, I'm like, how many, how many asses and seats could I get to recoup this cost, and then the theater was taking 50%, and it was this, I mean, like, so it, it took a lot, that's why you had to pump a lot of money into advertising, and to make that money, to make that money, but that's when VH, like, when home video showed up, of course, the whole industry was scared to death, but then they figured out, wait a minute, we can make some money here, and all of a sudden, it, it changed, but... Then it's been slowly. You've been seeing it from the days of 35 millimeter prints all the way now to zero cost, but also really hard to generate revenue coming in from yeah. those channels unless you're creative. It's 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 a very interesting um, journey that we've we've gone upon. Now I wanted to ask you something, and and I wanted you to clear up something for me because there's a lot of I you know we have this this little group uh, that I started on Facebook called uh, Protect Yourself from. Uh, predatory film distributors and aggregators, which started off as a distributor Facebook group, and now it's become like this hub of the latest distribution uh, techniques. Who's screwing? Who uh, asking questions about you know certain uh, distributors or, or sales reps and things like that? And people just you know, it's it's a wealth of information. I want you to clarify, and I'm not going to use the distributor's name, but and when the second I give you the description, you probably will know who it is. But I'm not going to say it. But if a fi- if a distributor is putting out 40 to 50 movies a month, a month, how much attention is going to each release? And they might be a very very grandiose the distribution company have you know this perceived value for independent filmmakers and they're like hey i'm with x company now look at that i have arrived but yet you'll get 0 dollars ever from that from that situation in many cases what's your opinion of that scenario and there's not there's a handful of those companies out there that just they just pump okay. them out and they're just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks essentially
1: well, that was what I was going to say. It, it really comes down to that, right? Is it's the, the, at the beginning, you know, let's say they sign up uh, 10 films, right? Uh, in, in a, in, a given period of time in the, in the, in the, in the next 30 days, they, they sign up 10. So that means they're finding, you know, these people that we've been talking about filmmakers who have worked hard, who have, uh, presumably, uh, in most cases completed their film, sometimes not, but, um, and they have to sign this agreement. Well, we've, you and I have talked about this. Those agreements can be fifteen-year commitments. You know, I mean, they tend to be five, seven, or ten years. Oh no,
2: I, I've seen first, them up to twenty-five now. They're going, they're getting so predatory. It's going up to twenty-five.
1: So now, because they want to lock the filmmaker in, like literally forever, right? So that they can't go somewhere else. And and and, and the truth is, even if they don't do anything with the film, the filmmaker can't take it and go someplace else with it. So they're essentially being Held hostage. So now they sign these ten agreements, and let's say, just to use that round number, let's say that every one of those agreements requires a one hundred thousand dollar marketing fee. That people should understand comes from the sales, right? I mean, it's not an upfront. We don't have to write them a check for hundred thousand, but the first hundred thousand in sales that's generated, we are agreeing that they're going to get to keep as their quote unquote marketing fee, right? (laughs) And that marketing fee. When it's legit, is fine because what it says to me as a filmmaker is, OK, there's nine other people here I'm sharing the pot with. And um, so does that mean that when they go out and do the front and the back page ad of the variety and the Hollywood Reporter throughout all of AFN for that entire sweep that my my uh, poster is going to be on there or it's going to be a, or they're going to be looping my my film on the on the on, on the screen? No, it doesn't mean that. It, it, it what it means it, but, but I'm paying the same as everybody else, right so now this in this scenario, this company who shall remain nameless has just is going to sell the shit out of that film mm-hmm. for until they hit the hundred thousand dollar mark right because that's their money so now they have just brought in a million dollars on ten films mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. off of the cracks of the filmmaker and their investors.
3: Mm-hmm. and
1: But then hit that plateau and I've seen this happen to me by mm-hmm. the other way, uh-huh. once they hit the plateau, their commission goes from that 100% of revenue down to 20 because that's their commission. So now they're only, and that, and if they do make a sale after that, that remaining 80% becomes my filmmaker, my first money in. Right. But now they've lost interest and they kick the thing to the curb. However, out of those 10 films, two of them might be deforming like gangbusters. And the other ones are just kind of mediocre, but two, one or two of them might be just taking the lead without question and for sure hit. Those are the ones they're gonna focus on. They're gonna move the other eight aside, they're gonna take those films, and they're gonna really push until they can squeeze every dollar out of it, even at 20% now, it's worth their while. And then next month, they're going to go find 10 more filmmakers. And by the way, while we're all trying to figure out where we're going to get the money to go to Cannes, mm-hmm. those are sitting on a yacht popping my way. thousand mm-hmm. dollars marketing fee off of my movie that I can't afford to go see at the festival.
2: Now I wanted to bring back something um that's why I love having you on the show because we speak the same language. Um that that that's an area that you talked about the print ad in variety during AFM. Now let's say on that print ad they have 20 posters. Okay? And that that ad costs 20,000 bucks, let's say, right? For that for that week uh, on Variety. Is it fair to say cuz I've seen this happen. Is it fair to say that they're not going to uh, cut up that twenty thousand, or prorate that twenty thousand per twenty. They're not going to charge each filmmaker a thousand bucks. In the accounting, they'll charge each filmmaker twenty thousand bucks for an ad. Does that make sense?
1: Well, <laughs> it, it does. I've never seen that. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, that, that would that's, surprise. that's called
2: that's isn't that yeah. Hollywood accounting?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but that's where it all goes wrong, and that's what I'm trying Correct. to say. it's and abuse. Look, Alex, I have gone to the extent because you know, first of all. Your listeners should understand that in these agreements, the filmmaker has the right to an, uh, an audit, right? Once a year at their own expense. So if, if you wanted to, you could go to this company after the deal's done and everything's happening and you have the right to go in and audit the books and take a look at what the scenario actually is, how much is being spent on what and whatnot. And so if that were the case, you would see what you just described. That said, you wouldn't know that it wasn't $20,000. Because in your mind, you're thinking, I was on the cover of Variety, or I was on the back cover of Variety. And it might make sense to uh, a a first or second time filmmaker that it would cost 20 grand to do that. When you're right, they just made $150,000, $200,000 off of a $20,000 ad.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. now back to the show
1: um the problem is number 1 nobody ever goes in for that audit nobody ever follows up on it if they forget even, that it's,
2: if it's even yeah, on the contract
1: and there right but assuming that it is mm-hmm. number 1 you uh god i hate to say this but it's just it's only because i've actually experienced this that so i'm speaking this way but mm-hmm. number 1 you know it's a it's a, it's incumbent upon the filmmaker to initiate that process number two it's like the irs audit you know it's like oh sorry gotta go to lunch uh can you come back next tuesday right so actually trying to find the time to get them to commit to letting you come in there to audit their books on your movie good luck forget about it right and then even if that happens what guarantee do we have? And I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Oh, you mean that there's a second set of books, sir? No,
2: no, stop it. You mean like mob what? style? Like mob style?
1: <laughs> like here you go. Take take a good look. Yeah, it's just. And this is why <laughs> oh, I've man. been saying for all these years that it's going to implode, bite them all. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to come back. This is not sustainable. It can't be. It can't be, it's no, it's no longer acceptable. The other thing I think that's playing into this, you know, when I first started, independent filmmakers were a joke. We were considered a joke. We we weren't ever taken seriously. And we, they, we were, it was so easy for them to toss us aside. Like we, we were just a bunch of freaks, you know? Um, until we started winning best picture every year.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Right? This year, but this year,
2: like, even even this year, Jesus, a foreign film for the first including, time, including this year.
1: So for like seven out of the last eight years, it's been an independent film, right? You're not seeing these big tentpole blockbuster films winning those picture. We're making those movies. We're we are making those movies. We might be distributing them through uh, the studio system for mm-hmm. exposures purpose, you know, purpose, but we're we're the ones who are making those movies. We, the independent film community, so. It became clear at some point that we as a community are now a force to be reckoned with and you can't treat us the way you used to treat us back in you know, 15 years ago when I got started. So, um, but the, the irony is that although a lot of the components of the industry have shifted and improved for us as independent filmmakers, as we've progressed, that one thing is just never changed. That distribution model of ripping off filmmakers doesn't change. And that's the reason why people are hungry for a distributor, right? To try to find an alternative to that. They're trying to find a way to self-distribute their films. And that's why people are, you know, doing it on Facebook and on whatever they can. Uh, They're looking for any means other than the traditional because um, that gap is starting to close.
2: Right. And the, the thing is, unfortunately, if you have a, a half a million or a million dollar film, self-distribution can happen. But man, you've got to be hitting it at every, every cylinder has to hit perfectly. You can't, you got to know exactly what you're doing. So that's why I keep selling, if you're going to go down that road, keep the cost as low as humanly possible. So be, so yeah. you can so get the ROI, so you can get into the black faster, you know, a $15,000 indie. Which could be excellent is going to have a lot better chance than a hundred and fifty thousand dollar indie to generate money back because both you and I know how difficult it is to get eyeballs yeah. to get people to look at your films. Um, it's it's just an insane it's an insane system. It's like going back in the olden days. Like how many? I I call it. I, I and I've said this publicly and I, I, I many many times. I feel what happened in the Me Too movement which was, it was something that was a standard way of doing business in Hollywood, like the casting couch. The casting couch was a thing from back in Chaplin's day. Everybody, oh yeah, yeah, I got to go on the casting couch to get that part, all of that, right? And Me Too kind of exploded that situation and all for the better, of course. I feel that what's happened to filmmakers over the course of that same time and even more so now is a financial kind of raping. Of because you know, you 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 put up three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of your own money or your mom's parents, or whatever, or investors' money, and they're literally just stealing it from you, stealing it legally. It's insane. So I think you're right, there is an absolute um reckoning coming, and I think that yeah. the system can't keep going. I think it was easier in the 80s, in the 90s, and even in the early 2000s because the volume was a lot different. The distribution outlets were a lot different. But now because Oops. of so much, this this system can't hold that's why it stayed like that for what? 80, 90 years. Yeah. Because yeah. it was pretty much locked. But now it's a it's the wild, wild west and they can't they can't handle it anymore. They don't even know how to deal with it. So they're trying to they they're trying. They're trying to use a horse and buggy on a on a Ferrari. No pun intended. And it doesn't. You know, the, the whip on the like trying to make the car go with with the horse and whip. I'm like, no, dude, that that's a car. <laughs> it has an engine. It runs on gas. It's not a horse. Do you, do you agree?
1: A hundred percent, hundred percent. And you know, the other aspect of this that's 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 already rearing its ugly head is on the investor side. You know, yeah. with what happened yeah. in, in the stock market just in the last. Week week or two, you know, when they say investors, you know, when they talk about the stock market, it's 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 in every other you know aspect. And so we essentially are experiencing right now a freeze uh, on investment. Nobody's the last thing somebody wants to do is talk to me right now at this moment about putting up a million dollars on a movie. Right. You know, <laughs> it be, it's getting it, tougher it, for you. Well, if, yeah, for, for everybody, because they're just trying to find a way to protect the money that they have, you know, and, you know, in in some ways, it may be a good way to divert the funds and put it into something, you know, that has the potential to really grow. But, but this goes back to what we're talking about the whole time, is that the, one of the issues we have, even with the investors that I deal with on a regular basis, is that, these guys hear these horror stories. They know what's going on. And so what happens is, you now, I now find myself in a position where an investor might say to me, listen, I'll put up the money for this movie, but I want a distribution deal up front. I want you to sign a distribution deal. And my response to that usually is, that's a bad idea. Because it is because I understand, Mr. Investor, that this would give you a sense of security because you've got this person's brand name attached to your film as a distributor. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, as an experienced filmmaker with 24 whatever films under my belt, I can tell you emphatically that we are going to be better off if you just put the money up and let trust us to do our job and make a really great film. And then let us go out there and compete in the marketplace. Let us go to the film festivals. Let us have, you know, let's get us a bunch of distributors vying for our, for our project. Let's not sell our soul to the devil today just so that you can feel a little bit more secure. Because in my opinion, you have a way better chance of not only making your money back, but making a much higher upside. If you let us go make a great movie and go out and compete with it. Then if you lock us into some 7- or 15-year deal with some schmuck who's never going to move and we're going to end up making this great movie and we can't even do anything with it because we already sold our soul to the devil over what? Over your lack of security?
2: Your insecurity, absolutely. It
1: doesn't make make any sense. That's a conversation I often have to have with investors and it's a tough conversation to have because you're literally saying to them – you know, let's let me take the security away from you (laughs) and trust me to do what we do. And in the long run, you'll we believe that we'll be better for it but it's a
2: but it's just a perceived security it's not really security it's not like you're signing with disney or warners and they're giving you a massive upfront fee that's covering your budget that's not the case you're you're basically just doing it you're just signing it up like anybody else and then maybe if you're lucky they give you a minimum guarantee of a quarter of the budget and that's like amazing if they did that but that's that's not happening
1: it's
2: not I was ta- I was talking to a it's filmmaker the other, I was talking to a filmmaker at AFM, and they were telling me like, hey, you know, I, I made a movie for one hundred fifty thousand. They were from uh, I think South Africa uh, or Australia as well, one of those two. And and uh, it's like we made 100, 150000 dollars film. I'm like, and we got a, an MG. I'm like, oh great, what you know, who did you sign with? And they told me the company. I'm like, okay, uh, that's fine. Um, what because when I heard MG, I'm like, who gets an MG in today's world? Like, for an independent film, how much did they did they do? And he's like, oh, they gave us thirty. And I go, 30, okay, um, is that for a certain territory? He goes, no, we gave them worldwide. And I'm like, so you got 30,000 for a product that you paid 150,000 for and you locked up your film for seven
0: years? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And he was just so happy that he got thirty thousand. I go. What other
2: business in the world do you spend one hundred fifty thousand to make thirty thousand? Like that doesn't. It makes no sense. But for and film, for filmmakers, we're like you happy, right? And he's like, no, no, but my film's going to get out there. I'm like, dude, And I, I, I mean, I think he walked away a little deflated after he spoke to me. I'm like, do you do you realize what you just did? Like, it may. I mean, if you if you're selling off one right or one territory for thirty thousand, and you still can keep going, great. Yeah. Y- you sold this you sold your soul for 30 grand yeah you're never going to yeah. make your money back it's insane
1: it never, and 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 people who have been in this business as long as you and I have all know that an mg is the kiss of death because you'll never see another penny you'll you'll get your your the amount you know maybe but but <laughs> i've heard But even, even, even then you know I, I always tell people, you know, you got to look underneath all of this stuff, right? I have a lot of people send me contracts and agreements to take a look at, right? Because you got to really know how to how to read these things. And I had an MG once; it was for four hundred thousand dollars. This is a long time ago when they did that. <laughs> it was for four hundred thousand dollars, right? right. But, what I, but what I didn't know was they put in a hundred thousand dollars of that MG. Was for producers. Now I was one, and my partner was one, so that was twenty-five and twenty-five. But then they put in twenty-five thousand each for the two of them, which was the two partners at the company, right?
3: Uh So
1: they're paying themselves fifty thousand out of the out of the four hundred thousand. So in real life, three fifty out of the four hundred was really three hundred, right? And then the payout was something like fifty thousand dollars. The first money didn't even hit. Until a year, so there was nothing up front, and then it was like in eighteen months, you get another fifty and, blah, 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 and then you get a hundred and the, and it would, the whole thing was the most embarrassing, bizarre thing I ever saw saw and so on one hand, I was excited because I'm getting this four hundred thousand dollar m g that I can get to that I could maybe go monetize right, or I could do a lot of things, I could brag about it. but then, when I looked at the thing, i literally it's interesting because that deal severed that 10 year relationship. Because what I said to them is, are you kidding me? The fact that you would even suggest to put this in front of me means that you think I'm a chump and we've had this relationship for 10 years and this is such a slap in the face and you know what their response was? Well, it was just a starting point. You know, we were, we're we're open to negotiating. And I'm like, well, go negotiate with somebody else. And I literally just tore up the document and I walked away. It was horrible, and we haven't spoken since. It's, isn't it's it sad?
2: Isn't it amazing? Like I, I met another filmmaker at AFM this year, and she was offered. This is the deal that she was offered. She was offered a twenty-year deal for her thriller from Africa. It was an African thriller, um, and it was tw- it was uh, a twenty-year deal. With a fifty thousand dollar mg, uh, not mg, a fifty thousand dollar marketing cap, but wait, which doesn't sound with well, the twenty years is horrible. But the fifty thousand, you're like, you know, and the it, it's okay, fine, I I kind of get it. No, 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 it was fifty thousand a year, a oh, year for so, twenty years for twenty. So it would have been two million dollars in marketing and expenses over the course of the contract, and she, even she. As inexperienced as she knew she was, she's like, "This sounds a bit dodgy." So she went back to this guy, and by the way, this was a sales rep. This wasn't even a distributor; it was a sales rep. And they get she he goes like this. I don't think he's like, okay, okay, okay. Listen, why don't we just do ten years and uh, a fifty thousand dollar total? And he, and he she's like, so basically, you were trying to screw me. And he's like, well, right. yeah. Just, it you, was yeah. it was just a starting it was a starting point. So they throw out these ridiculous deals. And by the way, that company that we were talking about earlier, the one that does fifty or forty or fifty, they're infamous for this. I've seen the agreements; they'll they'll toss out twenty year all the time. That's their standard practice now. It's twenty years uh, with a hundred thousand, and then they'll and then I had a filmmaker go back to them and go, "Look, this sounds a bit all right, all right, right, seven. <laughs> it's like I'm literally. It's like you're gonna go buy a house, and we're like, "We need a million dollars, cash." I'm like, "Uh, "This it seems a bit much." Okay, okay, two (laughs) fifty. (laughs) Like,
1: like what? What are you doing? (laughs) Right. Or you're in the car dealership, but the guy says, "Let me go talk to my manager."
2: Oh, the manager. (laughs) And they go drink a cup of coffee and go, "I think I got another live one." (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. All right. So So it's a racket.
2: It's a it's a racket, and now. I wanted to ask you because I know your budget what are the budget ranges in the films that you work with generally about a million million to 3 right
1: yeah 1 to 3 okay so at that, that range that's the sweet spot. I'm
2: supposed to say that again
1: that's the sweet spot okay 1 to 3
2: so you're you're yeah. in a you're outside the normal independent filmmaker cuz normal independent filmmakers in the current economic environment in the current environment and marketplace in general are half a million and below once you start getting above half a million, you really need to know what you're doing, uh, as a general as a general statement. So the one to three, from my experience at least, for one to three, there's a smaller group of people playing in that in that sandbox. So I'm curious how you are generating your revenue, and how are you getting returns for your for your uh, investors? Because obviously you've been doing this for a few years, so obviously you're making some sort of money. So what is what are the the revenue streams? And You don't have to give me numbers, but just curious like okay, I, I do this, I go here, I do that. How do you structure a deal that makes well, sense?
1: Well, I I actually just in 2020 made a decision to get out of the under million dollar uh, world. And, and cuz I've been doing it, you know, I, I have have yeah. a couple of these movies that are like, you know, 500 750 whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh 600. But but he, he, here's the reality today and why I no longer do that and why I stick to the one to three, you know, part of it is because of the distribution world and because the, uh, because the demands now are unreasonable. You know, when you talk about who, what, what level actor, these distribution people and sales companies require for you to have in your film in order to, you know, even be, have a slight interest or for that matter, for the investors. Uh, Because, you know, we run sales projections on every deal before we even think about going out to investors. And that's one of the biggest problems that a lot of filmmakers have is they're out running around trying to cast people and they've never even run any numbers on the people that they're going out to get. So don't even get me started on that. But because that's a huge pet peeve of mine because it doesn't work and it makes no sense. But uh, aside from that, when you're in that range, one of the things like I have um, finance partners that will monetize tax credits and and pre-sale uh, contracts right because those are hard assets they're collateral so there's very li- little risk involved I mean that doesn't mean that the state of Utah might go broken or their film uh, thing might run out of money I mean that that's all still a possibility but for all intents and purposes if you have a certificate from a state you're going to be able to cash in on that and that money's coming in so an investor feels safe doing that because it's no, it's no, there's no, they're not the equity, they're not the risk taker. And then you, and then what we do is we package that with, a, let's say there's a pre-sale for fifty thousand dollars, and I have a tax credit of two hundred. I can take that whole two fifty and I can, with through my lending sources, I can lend to the filmmaker that two hundred fifty thousand, put it in their bank account next to their equity, and now they have most of the money, if not all of it, to go ahead and make the film. So that's kind of how that works. The problem is that even though the film itself, the budget of the film, let's say it's 375, might qualify in the state of Massachusetts for a tax, uh, 25% tax credit, it doesn't qualify for tax credit funding because it's too low. It's too small of an amount. Mm-hmm. And these guys are gonna go do, do, do these you know, 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 dollar loans. It's not <laughs> worth it for them. So what happens is the, the criteria now has changed. So now the loan amount has to be 300000 So if the loan amount is 300000 that means your budget, it has to be a million dollars. And now you qualify to us to be able to monetize that tax credit. And then if you can add a minimum guarantee, you know, or a uh, pre-sale to that, we can bundle it and, and lend it up, lend out the money. So that's one of the reasons. And, and the other reason is in order to get a pre-sale or, or, or a potential uh, MG, based on what? I mean, if you're making a movie for $350,000, who are you going to get in that movie that's going to justify or warrant any kind of an MG? You're not. Nobody. So so it, it just doesn't make the grade. When you get into that 1.5, 2.5 range...
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: You find yourself in a little bit better of a position where A, you do qualify for tax credit funding,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and B, you might have a shot at being able to get a pre sale or something in addition to that that you can bundle up and, and put in. And then so that's the goal, is to try to package it that way. What I've been working on for the last year and a half, and I continue to and I hope to have done by the end of this year, and I think you know this because I think we've talked about it privately, but I'm working on putting together these film funds, two of them, that will alleviate all of these problems by being able to advance 100% of the budget up front for these films. So if somebody brings in a project that gets approved through our fund and it's $2 million, we're just going to write the check. And go make the movie and not deal with this nonsense and jump through hoops and figuring out tax credits. Now, we'll still go to want to go to a tax credit environment and, and recoup that, that 25 or 30% for ourselves mm-hmm. as the fund mm-hmm. as part of our all recoupment. But we're not to, which means that if I want to shoot in a state or wherever that doesn't happen to have a tax credit, I'm not prohibited anymore by the numbers. I can go – I got the whole – Money. The other benefit to that is you have the proof of funds up front, for 100% of your budget. So when you are making those offers to those actors, you're now negotiating from a position of strength by saying, here's my proof of funds. I have $2.5 million in the account, and here's my offer for 250 And And even then, I'm going to be in a position to be able to write a check for 10% of that, $25,000 as a down payment towards that offer. So it, it, uh, it elevates me and puts me in a place where I can start making stronger offers to better, you know, bigger names, which will yield you know, better returns. And so that's why I brought everything up into that into that space. And it's a great space to be in, in terms of, uh, for me, at least in my resources, once you break 5 million and you go up into the eight or 10, it becomes a little bit of a black hole. And then from ten million up, it, it's another whole ball game, you
2: know. Now you you spoke about pre-sales, and I I know that back in the day, pre-sales was a way to finance your whole film. Honestly, there was you know you could literally go to all the markets, pre-sell all your movie, and you had your your budget essentially. How how is it in today's world? Uh, and I I can only imagine what it's going to be like in the next four or five months, but um, or the rest of this year for that matter. But historically, within the like let's say the last year. Where are you getting these pre-sales? Are they foreign pre-sales? Are they like you? You are you carving out rights?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 individual territories.
2: And that's relationship that uh, you just have.
1: Yes, Got yes, it. it's in, it's in, Got it. it's individual territories. I mean, you can go to a sales company and have yeah. them do it, but then like we just said, you're locked in, right? So but there are lots of people, you know, when you've been around as long as I have that you can pick up the phone and say, hey, Latin America, I need a sale. Here's my film. Can you get me something in Latin America? Yeah, I can get you one hundred twenty five K. All right, I'll take it, you know, because it because you're right in the old days, you could go theoretically and just make your whole movie by selling off your pre-sales. But but at the same time. You really don't want to sell off your pre-sales because it limits your your, your ability to earn revenue, right? Because you're upset. once you make that sale, right. it's gone. So right. now you're, you know, they can go <laughs> and exploit that film in that territory, but you get no, you get nothing out of that because you you cashed out. So you want to be strategic about you know how where you sell those territories. So I'll I'll get projects a lot of times where I'll, they they want they're looking for funding, but they'll say okay, but five territories are already so, spoken for. And to me, that's a negative on my side because that's five less territories I can I can work with revenue wise. But on the other side, it's a very good thing because that indicates to me, well, if this if five territories have already purchased this thing, it must be good.
2: So it obviously has but Eric it Robert it has Eric Roberts and Michael Madsen in it, obviously. So yeah, yeah both
1: <laughs> they have to be both together. But uh <laughs>
2: That's an inside joke, guys. Everybody, uh, Eric Roberts did how many movies last year? 35? 35 movies? I think.
1: Uh, and I, and I, I haven't done one with Eric, but I've done one with Michael. So it's a story for another day. That's another story. But, it, was, uh, it,
2: was, it was funny. I, I joke about that because when I was doing posts, there was a year I did three Eric Robert movies. In one year, yeah. I did all the posts on three Eric Robert movies. And I was like, and my poor producer, who spent like a lot of money to get Eric Roberts in his movie, was that was the, that was the anchor. He would go to distribution companies yeah. like, "No, we're good. We've got three of Eric Roberts' movies this year. We don't need a year. another one." It was he diluted the marketplace. Well, it,
1: it's true. That's exactly what it is. It's a saturation. It, they get to a saturation point, and that did happen with Michael. But Michael's fine. He still makes his money. Oh no, his he's movies. good. Yeah, he, he does a yeah. Quentin
2: Tarantino movie every few uh, years, and that uh, brings him uh, back up.
1: Yeah. They're all going to be fine. I mean, they're all going to fine, but it's true. There, there is a saturation point. And then the other thing i like to tell people too, cause a lot of people don't understand this. And I think it's really important to understand, you know, people, when people are pitching me, these actors, you know, first of all, I have one, I have this thing called a parenthesis rule, the parenthesis mm-hmm. rule. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, remember I'm talking about international. So I'm not talking about domestic, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, the movie I did, uh, guns, girls and Gimling. we had Christian Slater and Gary Oldman. Right. So Christian Slater is a great domestic play. He's a great name in the United States and Canada, North America. But Gary Oldman is an international value name. Mm-hmm. Christian is not an international value name. So in a perfect world, you, you want both. You want an actor that's going to pull your domestic audience and then you want an actor that's going to give the, the buyer in Germany and UK and China a reason to want to buy your, your, your rights, right? Because mm-hmm. Gary Oldman's face is on the – cover right Mm -hmm. so that's the the kind of balancing act but so the parenthesis rule is when people say to me and it happens literally every single day of my life they're pitching me something and they go oh yeah we got you know so and so um from such and such a movie or from this tv show she's on the cw right
2: she's she's really hot right now she's really hot
1: yes okay that's what i'm getting at right so that may be well true but first of all the parenthesis test means if you can walk out this middle of the street and just pull a random person and ask give them that person's name and have them know who they are then they count it's great if you can if they can't they don't count so if i pull somebody up the street and i go cameron diaz they go yeah i love her Right, Nicholas Cage.
2: Yes, get it.
1: Love him. Yeah, got it. But then you go, you know, Alex Ferrari. They're like, who?
2: First of all, I'm insulted, sir. Secondly,
1: <laughs> I'm
2: I'm I'm huge in Zimbabwe. I'm just saying, I'm huge. I can't walk the streets in Zimbabwe. <laughs>
1: That's like me in Japan. It's crazy. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so huge in Japan. But the but the thing I want to say about the point you made is right. The up-and-comers, mm-hmm.
3: right?
1: It, it may be really true that they literally are on that skyrocketing sure. trajectory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even if they're at close to the top of that, it takes about three years for that to translate into value on the open market. It takes three years. Mm-hmm. So somebody could come out in this big, huge movie that's a blockbuster and everybody's crazy over them and now they're getting parts – from every single direction and they were in every movie that you go to see, but that doesn't give them that level of, of, of value in the international market yet. They have to earn that because you know, a lot of these people rise and fall. Oh, right.
2: Oh, and in they, today's they have, world,
1: they do, they catapult up to a certain level and then they just drop up. And you never hear from them again. Right. So that, that's not necessarily an investor investment. You're looking for people who are going to be able to sustain that well beyond their rise period, you know, and, and maintain that name and face recognition. Those are the people that have value. And for that reason, it changes every year. And that's the reason why I tell these filmmakers one during through our program, through the development program, we spend a lot of time researching and figuring out, making lists of actors that make sense for a given movie. narrow that list down to five names for each with a casting director. Um, and then bringing that into the sales team, including the director, by the way. So it could be the, the male lead, the female lead, and then the director. We take all of that and sort of crunch the numbers with sales to figure out what kind of projections we can anticipate based on, these people and what combination of those people gives us the best numbers in the world. And then once I'm armed with those numbers and my rule of thumb is they give you three columns, right? The low, the middle, and the high. My rule of thumb is your low should be two times budget, one and a half to two times budget. So if you're making a movie like I do at 2 million bucks.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: You want your low estimate to be at least three, between three and four, and you need the name power in order to get to that number. But now you have a strategy because if, and when you do that, now you got a plan, these are the five actors. I got to go get one of these five actors. And if I don't, I, I my investor can take his money back because I'm going to take the investment contingent upon me being able to deliver on my end, right? But I have to know what I'm delivering. So instead of just running around talking about, Oh, I want so-and-so to be in my movie there, there's a science to this. It's not perfect, but at least it's a strategy that helps us determine. I tell filmmakers all the time, if you haven't done this work, if you don't know exactly what your budget is and you don't know what your sales projections are and you don't have a strategy around your cast, you do not have the right to be talking to investors. You shouldn't be doing it. It, it. You're you're going out too soon. You're out there having conversations with people with money that you shouldn't be having because you're not prepared to have those conversations because you don't have the information that's required for them to be able to make a rational, sound decision on whether or not you're a good investment or not.
2: Now, Franco, it's your job. You're, you, you sound very logical here. Um, you, you sound like you're making sense – um but i'm going to i'm going to play the devil's advocate here i'm an artist man i i i'm an artist i i just want to make a film with this actor and i can't do it for less than 3 million because my vision depends on 3 million dollars and um i'm not going to worry about how to make money with the film that's your job not mine as as a director and as the creative uh, muse of this project um i i i, I I I don't want to get locked down with, you know, what actors are worth and what they're not worth internationally. I want the best person for the part. Now, but I also want the best person for the part, in my opinion, who, by the way, I've never made a movie before. So that, um, I've never made a feature, but I've seen it on TV, so it doesn't look that difficult. So... um, (laughs) I've seen a lot of behind the scenes. I've, I could I could do what they do. I mean, it's not that hard. Um, if there's green screen, I it's fine. So um, <laughs> so I, I, look, I'm making I'm making a gist of this, but this conversation I'm sure you've had multiple times. I've been on the other side of this conversation earlier in my career when I would do something. I was that that naive. Let's not say stupid. That naive. That egocentric. Yeah. And what I always tell people is like, look, if you want to play in a very large sandbox, there are different rules in a larger sandbox. So like my last movie that I did for a few thousand bucks, which you saw, that sandbox, I have all – I know you said you love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know you loved it. Um, the, that sandbox, I can do whatever – I want cast whoever I want, tell whatever story I want. Not worry about international sales. Not worry about my cast. I can cast whoever I want because the va- the cost is very low. It's kind of like building a shed in the back or a ten million dollar mansion. You could do whatever you want with that shed. That's going to cost you five grand of your own money. But when you're asking for ten million to build that mansion, that by the way you've never built a mansion before. Um, it doesn't work is that a fair assessment
1: yeah, well, that's exactly, and you're right. I hear that all the time, and you know you're right it is it is it is it is a vast difference because the question becomes at that point well, what's at stake in your in your scenario with your three thousand or five thousand dollar film that's okay. what's at stake right it, that's a, that's your world that's you you want to create that world, and as a filmmaker, I encourage people to do that because that's where you learn how to do all of this right because the process that you have wait, that you went through for a five thousand dollar film is no different than the five million dollar You're still going to go through the same process. The difference is that the stakes are higher, right? And now in your uh, scenario A, you're the only person, person that you're accountable to, or the few people that might have helped you mm-hmm. financially to get to that point. In my world, you got investors who are going to be breathing down your back, and they're not, they're not only going to be breathing down your back, but you know, you, if, you, if you mess up on a two or $3,000 film, you can recover from that and go make another $5,000 film and then yeah. a $10,000 film. Sure. If you mess up, especially if it's your first one, if you mess up on a $2.5 million film and you can only recover $250,000… You're not making that mansion, my friend. <laughs> you're in deep, deep trouble, number one. And number two, now what inevitably happens is that same filmmaker gets a bright vision for the next film… And they're, they want to go embark on getting number two done, right? And, they, and they're so buried in number one that they're a million and a half dollars behind, right? And then on top of it, you got the whole distribution thing that happens on top of that. So, so my, where, where I'm coming from is this is what I tell people. There's sort of two paths you can take when it comes to this business. There's what I call the pitch and sell, and then there's the uh, DIY, right? The pitch and sell. I know writers that are great writers that just want to write. They just want to write, 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 and they write really well. And they're out asking people like me, "Hey, do you want to buy my script?" Right? No, I don't want to buy a script because I don't. I don't buy scripts. I make movies. Like there's a difference, right? So, if but there are people who do buy scripts. And you can make a living, and I know lots of folks, folks who do and probably do too, that make a living writing scripts for other people to go knock yourself out. And once that check clears, they're good. They don't care what happens to that project um, And because they got 10 more behind it or 20 more behind it. So that's one avenue. The world that I live in is to produce your own material and maintain uh, both the creative control over it because mm-hmm. you'll lose that in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. otherwise maintain the creative control and maintain the financial control so that you're the rights holder it's your story you wrote it you own it and it stays that way throughout the, the whole thing so you can have the reap the benefits if you go down that route there's a whole nother set of responsibility it's like going from the minor leagues into the olympics the training is different <laughs> you know yeah yeah and you have to get it. the training is different you can't you can't, you can't mix one up with the other. So if you're going to go play softball with your friends, it's one thing. If you're going to go try out for the Olympic you know, team, that's a whole different way of, of operating. So, and that's what happens is a lot of people get stuck in the transition. You know, I got a lot of filmmakers that come to me and they've made a couple of short films. Right. right. And when, they, you know, they, paid, they paid 2000 bucks and you know, they, they did a great job and they're winning awards and it's great. I love that because I think that shows a lot of character, right. Mm-hmm the same time I know people who come to me and they've made 12 shorts and I'm like stop making shorts like, like we get it like <laughs> with all of the time and energy and money that you're putting into all of these shorts you could be making the feature that you could sell but 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 my my point is that there's a mentality around that experience especially if it's their first time on set and they're all their friends are there and they get to boss everybody around and they get to be the big boss and the big cheese and they sit in their director chair and they're, oh, yeah. all just, you know, do doing. The-
2: they're playing it's the part. Great, right, they're playing the part. They're
1: playing the part. Amazing experience that they walk away from. But then they think that when they go to a movie for two million bucks, it's going to be the same thing except bigger. And it's not the same thing. Mm. It's not the same thing. And no, you can't bring your buddy out of film school to be your DP. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> or to do your budget? No. At that level, when you're talking about millions of dollars, you have to build a team. And what I tell these guys is when you made that short film, you probably didn't do it alone, right? You, you brought in a DP and a first AD and a script supervisor or whatever you had to bring in. You needed to build an infrastructure around you so that you could direct that film. Well, in my world, I do the exact same thing, except we do it in the business. And I surround people with the people that they need to build their business team So that they can go out and properly, the key word, raise the funding to be able to make the movie that they envision. And then we go out and put together the team of professionals that are going to support and surround them so that they they can make the best movie possible. That we all have the same stake in because we want to see it get distributed and sold and return uh, investment on. Because if you can do that, especially on their first film, if, if that should be the goal. The goal shouldn't be to win the Oscar on the first round, although that would be lovely. The, the, the goal shouldn't be to um, – Sundance. Call box office rest-
2: – Sundance can South by Southwest. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I have people say actually say to me, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to Sundance. Like they're going to walk in and Sundance is going to go, come on in here. There's a screen open right there. Why don't you go shoot it right up there? <laughs> Hold on. Let me go get a couple of people to watch this thing with you.
2: Would you like some popcorn, like, sir? Would you like some popcorn? We can
0: massage your feet while you watch it, sir. Is that is – that, yeah, that's not the way it works. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You're trying to basically, you're
2: just uh, mitigating risk. You're, you're mitigating risk because the higher the number goes of the budget, the more risk you have at that thing. And the studios do it all the time. That's why now it's just reboot after IP, after you know, established properties, because they don't, at $200 million, you can't risk. It's very difficult, like Avatar was the last time I saw a studio take a $500 million risk on a new IP, but it was James Cameron and, and he could do it. That's why, they're, that's why it's always reboot, 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 IP, 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 because they can't, they can't risk that much.
1: And, and even then, about I don't know when this happened, but I remember it's good, probably been a good 10 years now. There was a time when you, there was never any such thing as seeing two studios on one film. Right, everybody was competing with yeah. each other. Mm-hmm. It was either Paramount mm-hmm. or Universal or WB. Correct. Now you see them working together, but for that reason, because it, if they're gonna if they're gonna work on a hundred and fifty million dollar project, why don't we put up seventy five million each and share the risk and utilize our resources instead of fighting with each other? Why don't we join each other and make this thing a huge hit? You know, and uh, that's what's been happening now is that they're they they've started to smarten up and team
2: and, and then there's uh and then there's, cats. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: then there's cats which i haven't seen so i I'm can't di- really say i it. can't
2: wait to see I, it i'm dying yeah, to see it will.
1: but it's go together
2: i mean i i'm dying <laughs> to see it only if it's inside sir because obviously we're not allowed out anymore um but that's, that's, no but and i keep telling this to people i've never seen it and i don't want to bash anybody but i mean it's when you have a once in a generation, it's a once in a generation situation where you have a hundred million plus studio film that fails at such a just a, a Goliath of a of a failure. Um, it doesn't happen. And on paper, that movie had everything going for it. Uh, it was a it was an IP that was world renowned, the best town, multiple Oscar winners, and the behind the scenes is the director, the writers, the actors. This, the visual effect – I mean it, it had everything going for it and it, 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 you know, obviously it was a colossal failure in many, many ways.
1: Uh, it was like the opposite of the producers. <laughs> the movie The Pro- right. Right. It was the opposite of that. But you know, it's interesting because it brings up a really important point yeah. that, that, I, that I've talked about for 10 years now. I have, a, I have a phrase that I use. I say to filmmakers, when they come to me, they have a lot of expectations, right? And that's understandable. But there's a reality to all of this, too. So because it costs a lot of money to do this. You know, this is this. Nobody's working for free here. This is a business. So there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of heart at stake. There's a lot of stress. But at the end of the day, for people who are willing to go through the process and develop a film properly and figure all of that stuff out and and, and, and in my world I'll help them I'll take them by the hand and carry them through that process which is an arduous process especially if they've never done it before but I say to them you can do everything right like, literally everything right from day one you can write a beautiful script uh, like top shelf script you can go out there and make a shoot a gorgeous film beautiful, you can go into the editing room and you know because you could lose everything right there you could, the whole thing could fall apart but assuming that assuming that you don't, and then you come out on the other side, and you've got a beautiful piece of art to be able to display. When I, what I tell people is, no matter what we do together as a team or whoever's involved, at the end of the day, the, there's only one thing that's going to ultimately determine the success or the failure of your film, and it's the film.
2: No, stop it. It's the no. Film. It's everything else but the story.
1: It's not the the writer. It's not the acting. It's not the sound. It's not the lighting. It's not the music. It's all of it, and that cat is such a perfect example, you know. Because anyone in their right mind who might have been given an opportunity to invest in that movie would have been crazy not to do it. Of of course, like I said, on paper it's perfect. Yeah. But but that's why that's why it's such a great example of what I'm saying is because it was perfect. Until it wasn't. And now, people are, you know, hurting from that. I mean, experience. That's a... But the thing
2: a- was, so if we analyze Cats for a second, let's beat up let's beat up Cats a little bit more because God knows it hasn't been beat up enough. There was a risk involved that no one took into consideration and this is the best minds in Hollywood, Oscar winning minds as well as the best, I mean, it's Universal is no slouch uh, as far as making movies is concerned. No one no one, everyone us underestimated the risk of the CG. Everyone assumed that the visual effects were going to be solid because they had a great company doing it, but no one took in consideration pushing the visual effects artists too fast, un- unrealistic deadlines, constant revisions. No one took all of that into consideration because that director, who is a fantastic filmmaker, from my experience, did not have he's not a CG guy. Um, he's not James Cameron. He's not David Fincher. He's not someone who understands that world and understands timelines and stuff. He was, you know, he did the King's speech and, you know, more, you know, yeah. those kind of films. So I think that was, a, no one took that in consideration and it, and it just failed because I, I talked, to, I saw I didn't talk to the actors, but I saw the actors afterwards are just like, we were on a set in green screen. Like we had no idea we were going to look like that. Like, we were good. I worked 10 days. I had a ball. It was fantastic. You know, you got But no one under no one ever did the test to go, hey, maybe these guys look creepy. <laughs> I've yeah. said this. I've said best The best review I've ever of cats. And I'm going to say it again because I've said it on the show before, but I, I can't stop saying it. The cats is the worst thing to happen to cats since dogs.
1: Oh, my God. That's funny. <laughs> That's good. That's
2: good, and it's probably true. Okay. All right, so let's let's get off the of cats for a second. Um, now, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions, if you have some time, sir, because I know you're a busy man. Yeah, no, I'm good. We, we've talked a little bit off air about this, and I just did an, an, a podcast recently about this, where there is, uh, not only is there a lot of uh, predatory people and scam artists in the distribution space and in the sales rep space, but there is, oddly enough, in the film financing space, Space, which is the space you live in. Um, and now with the, the episode, and I'll put it in the show notes, which was about the minimum guarantee scam, where now you go you know, to someone who's pretending to be someone like yourself and says, hey, we will package the movie for you. We will get a, an MG, a minimum guarantee from X of these distributors who we have all the connections for. All we need is 40 to 60,000, maybe 80,000 up front to do this work for you. And I just got off the phone with a, a, a poor filmmaker who got, it was like a million plus film, dollar film. And he got screwed for forty dollars or $50,000 out of this one of these companies. And I wanted to just throw it at you to say, what can filmmakers look out for? Because, I mean, obviously you and I would smell that coming from a mile away. But a lot of young filmmakers or even people who are just not familiar of this side of the business, what can they look out for? What are some, some signs that we can kind of protect yourself from these 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 predators
1: well you know I, because i've been doing this for 20 plus years i have to say i've become very jaded around all of that because i i am at the point where i literally don't believe a word anybody says to me agreed until i mean, until, the, base, until
2: the check clears until the check clears
1: <laughs> that's the baseline the baseline is when they say to me, uh, I'm working on this film and I got it's a million dollar budget and I have three hundred thousand, I'm I'm thinking, No, you don't. So let's start there. Let's proof, start with no, prove you don't.
2: prove to me that you have the three hundred thousand.
1: Yeah. And even then they scam you because the I was telling somebody the other day that I had a guy that needed uh seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, uh, and we we were looking for proof of funds. And what he did was He's delivered me a, uh, a redacted uh, like a like a Charles Schwab type of investment account certificate. Sure. And it was real. It was real. And it had but it had the name and the uh, so, you know so, social security number and all that redacted. So you couldn't see that. But I could see the balance. It was something like six million dollars in there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he and this was a long time ago. This was years ago. And he said, see, this is my guy. He's got $6 million, so $750 won't be a problem. So I went with it. I went running around town telling anybody I had $750,000 in the movie. Only come to find out that although the proof of fund uh, uh, paperwork was legit, there was just a friend of his that did him a favor and gave him a piece of paper to use. The guy had no intention of putting any money in the movie. There was nothing connecting the money that I could see to the film that we were trying to put together.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: So there, the, we used to have the phrase prove the money. And I've had to change that now to move the money.
2: Into an account that
0: we all agree on.
1: Yeah, we'll establish the account. You put the money in, and and, and unfortunately, it's come to that, because if they're not willing to actually move funds
2: into an escrow um, account, it's by the way, that's an escrow account. That's not like a personal account for you. It's an escrow account. A
1: place to touch that anybody can touch it. Right, but just to the physical moving movement of the fun, of the funds. Now we have a basis for a conversation. Even even then, that's all it is, right? Because they can take it back out. <laughs> but at least if it's there now, I have a basis for a conversation to to engage. Um, so you know what I tell, and, and this kind of ties into your your hypothetical scenario about the filmmaker, you know, that was making their first movie, is that really what I did at the beginning? Was I got on IMDb Pro back then? This was twenty years ago. And I found a filmmaker, ran, randomly, who I believed uh, sort of – would so, somebody who I felt like – I looked at a couple of them. Um, but I started taking people out to lunch. I started meeting people on the phone. Now, I was in a unique position because I had investors, but I didn't have any projects. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even know what the requirements were. I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. So I went out, I found this executive producer who, um, my deal was, I will bring my investors to you, uh, in exchange. I want to be a part of this, of all of this and I want to learn. Yeah. I want to learn. I want, I want, I want money. I want a credit. I want to build something. So I was in in a unique situation, but it worked because by being in those rooms and listening to those meetings and actively participating in all of these conversations, I got to a point where after a while I thought, I got this, you know, I can do this now on my own. I feel confident enough on being able to do it on my own. And I had watched her make her own mistakes. So I knew what not to do in a lot of cases. So I think today, you know, it's hard to do. I'm not suggesting for a moment it's easy, but I i am saying it because it happens because I'm on the receiving side of that now. So a lot of the times I'll get these random emails and stuff, especially like on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. People say, I'm looking for an executive producer. So for me, executive producer is code for money. money. So when somebody says to me, I'm looking for an executive producer, my response is, how much? You know, I'm looking for an executive producer. How much do you need? Because, they, they you know, who are you kidding but but at the same time, you know, being able to partner or be mentored by or find some way of getting to be around the people who are doing it and are doing it well and who are trustworthy, you know, mm-hmm. and have – you have good names and reputations in the industry is really a good way to get started because, you know, you were joking but the, the truth is most of these uh, – People that I meet, they are on the creative side and they don't want to do this stuff. They don't right. want to learn this stuff. Right, they, right. they don't want it. And, and those people aren't the ones I'm interested in. You know, I because I, I don't want to work with them either. You know, I I want to work with people who want to work hard, figure this thing out, and do it and do right. it the right way. And I want to it's more of a collaboration at that point, you know. So that's that's really uh, what you have to do. And 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 because if you have a foundation like that, when that guy comes and shows up. And says, hey, give me 50K and this is what I'll do for you. You have two or three point people like me, you know, that have that kind of experience to be able to pick up the phone, shoot an email and go, hey, you know. And I've got probably 10 of those people out there in the world that I have an open policy with. If you have a problem, if you have an issue, if you just want me to look over an agreement or something, I'm happy to take a look at it in order to protect those filmmakers. And I'll tell you, but they have to build that relationship with those people. hmm One of my biggest pet peeves is when somebody just shoots me an email with a pitch package.
2: Oh, I get them. I get them. And I'm not a financer. How does that
1: work? Do your homework. (laughs) I got, I had, I must've got two or three of them today, right? There's no introduction. There's no nice to get to know you. There's no, Hey, blah, blah, blah. They just literally send you this long email and then, and then five attachments. With their script and their pitch deck uh-huh. and all of this. And I'm like, hello, nice to meet you. Like, wh- what happened to a rapport? What happened to earning? I'm not a piece of what meat. Happened-
2: I'm not a piece of meat, sir. I have a heart, <laughs> I have a soul. Try to get to know me, Franco.
1: <laughs> it, it, but it's true. It's like, it's right. It's etiquette. It's courtesy. It's professional. It's diplomatic. It's like because because that's what I'm attracted to, right? I'm attracted to commitment. Mm-hmm. People who make commitment. You know, um, people who are willing to go all in and make commitment. And pe- there's a lot of people who say that mm-hmm. that they're all they make commitment, but they're not really there. Oh no. I'm. I'm. I'm I'm interested in people who who are willing to go all in and make commitment. But I'm also interested only in people – look, I say this all the time. Uh, I always say there's there's great projects and shitty people. Pardon my French. Right? And then there's shitty projects and great people. (laughs) Yes. And then there's great projects and great people. (laughs) I want the great projects with the great people because even if they're shitty projects, but their are great people, we can go find another project. that's not so shitty and we can right. still work together. Right. But if people is the problem, then I'm out. And anybody who feels that it's okay to bombard anybody's email, yours or mine with just puking out all this information without at least making the effort, to establish some kind of a rapport is out in my book. They might have a great project and I might pass it out. It might be the next big thing and I lost. But you know what? I would have – it would have been a nightmare and I'm not interested in that
2: and i've been saying this for for years as well. If filmmakers do not understand I, look, i'll go back. The problem i feel that a lot of filmmakers in general have, it is it's not their fault. They've been taught this old system from film schools and by hollywood that you got to do this, this, this and this to get your movie made and you don't have to worry about the business, we'll take care of it for you. And but that's what that's that's the message that's been sent out at film schools and it's been sent out in the industry. Why? Because it benefits the industry It's that's how the business works. That's Hollywood accounting. They don't want you to know too much about what goes on behind. They don't want you to know how the sausage is made. They don't want you in the room where the decisions are made. If I may go Hamilton, they don't want any of that because once you are informed, you become harder to deal with because now they can't scam you. So I think any filmmaker in today's world that does not understand the entire process, even at a rudimentary level you know, understand what the DP is doing and also understand what the distributor is doing at a simplistic level, you are, you're going to get taken advantage of in one way, shape or form from somewhere. So you need to understand the entire ecosystem, the entire process as much as possible. Look what you did when you were first starting out. You're like, I want to learn. I want to learn everything. I want to know about everything. You know, I'm not going to hire you to, to DP my film. I know that, but you, but you know what a good DP is. And you know when a good DP is trying to pull one on you because they want something cool for their reel and they're not making their hours yeah. and they're not making their pages because I need to get this one shot. That's nice, but we need to move it along.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. yeah, you're 100% right. And you know, uh, one of the things I'm often quoted as saying is that film school teaches you how to make a movie, but who's going to teach you how to get a movie made?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So That's those great. are two different things. That's and and in, it is my opinion... Uh, Based on experience that film schools literally, like you just alluded to, they don't want you to know the stuff that I teach people because they're going to scare these guys away. They're going to scare them away. So what happens is these these people go out and spend 30, 40, 50, whatever thousand dollars on film school. A year, a year, year, a year. Yeah. So I'm not taking that away in terms of the value from an artistic, creative perspective. Mm-hmm. But then they come, they, get, they graduate, and then they come knocking on my door.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
1: And they're like, dude, what do I do? Like, I don't even know step one. I don't even know where to start. And so, that's actually one of the reasons why initially I started, why well, I created the development program is because it occurred to me that these are really talented people that have just spent all this money and they don't even know step one, they need to be educated. Somebody has to pick up where film school left off and say, look, let me show you how this works. Let me at least explain. Like you said the basics. Let me at least explain it to you so that you understand the concepts of the basic concepts of financing, equity, debt tax credit financing distribution casting uh, every element legal Post- re- really post-production Deliverables, uh, budgeting the- scheduling all of the stuff that, 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 that they just don't have they don't they don't see it in relationship at least to actually going out and raising money and putting funds together so um, I think it's a big uh, void it's been great for me in the sense that you know I've been able to build a whole uh, branch of my my company on based on educating people uh that fit into that category and they love it they love it and but that's the point if they don't love it, I don't want them there no
2: no absolutely well because look it's
1: course, I want them to be excited. I have this one couple I talk to you know I do this on Skype because mm-hmm. most of these people don't live there. and um and literally every Monday, we can't we can't wait to sit in front of our computers and talk to each other because we just know that for an hour and a half, we're going to have a lot of fun while they're learning how to do this. And they're so excited and animated. And it just gives me such joy to be able to work with them. And that's what the people I want to invest my time and energy into.
3: Right.
2: No, without question. And but the thing is, and, and that's where a lot of filmmakers get caught up in, is I've said this a lot of times. Uh, Hollywood's really good at selling the sizzle, not so much the steak, but the sizzle. Man, they're the best in the world at the sizzle. And film schools, you know, they sell the sexy part of this process. It's this. It's yeah. sexy to to work with the actors. The Oh, to work with the actors, to look, play with the camera and the lenses and and editing and all that. It's really sexy to kind of be the creative part. But when you're done with that product, it's like it's really sexy to bake. Like, you know, like all those baking shows. Like, oh, look at these cool things I'm making. It's all great. Then I at this cake that, you know, explodes and does all this. It's fantastic. Now, how are you going to make a business out of that? product. Yeah. And that's the thing yeah. that no, nobody talks about because that's not the sexy part. I love that part. I think it is the sexy part. It's, it's more exciting. It's actually one of the ex- most exciting part. marketing and the business side is excites me a lot, you know, being a yeah. film entrepreneur. So I really do right. love, I love that part of it, but most yeah. filmmakers just want to sit back, go to the red carpet, sign the yeah. autographs, hang yeah. out with the actors and, cool. and, and play the role and play the role, but then play the role at a $3,000 budget. Don't play the role at a $3 million budget.
1: Your own money. Yeah. Don't come, don't, don't come to us. Yeah. And, and I, and I, and I do, I, I feel that same way. Like, I, so, because I, I am that, I, I live that. I love it. I love the development process. I love watching people, the light go on and go, mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's such great information. I feel so good because what happens is by the time we finish my my job with first and second time filmmakers is yes education but empowerment like I want them to be able to go out into that world and have those meetings and sit in front of those people and really have a good solid foundation and a confidence about them an air of confidence about them that they can sit down and if they happen to meet somebody on a subway or a, a restaurant that's and they spark up a conversation about they're making a movie and the guy happen, the woman happens to be an investor and they're curious. I want them to be able to sit there and hold their own and have a conversation. They may get to a point where they go, you know what? I better shut my mouth and have Franco talk to these people because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But but I want them to be able to be empowered, to be able to be confident enough, to be able to initiate. Because when you're talking to investors, people – it's a different language. And this Mm -hmm. is what I tell people. People say to me all the time. What's the number one thing that filmmakers do wrong when it comes to raising money? And I always say, and I've said it, you've heard me say it a million times, they go out too soon. They're not ready. They're not prepared. They, they're not in the position to be talking about that. And part of the reason is because they're pitching story to money people. <laughs> it doesn't compute. They're pitching story. Story's critical, it's important. But an investor doesn't know. What are you talking about? Goes right over their head and they're going to walk away and go, what a friggin' nut job. That guy asked me for $2 million and and I got nothing. I got a story.
2: Isn't it an equivalent of me going to the bank? And going, I want a small business loan, and I'm going to open up a bakery. And all I talk about is the ingredients, the the fondant, the how it's layered, how many you know the cupcakes, and how beautiful. That, that's all I talk about is the product. I have no understanding about how I'm going to make money with this. But that's the equivalent. It's the equivalent. You can't talk story or creative to business people. It doesn't work that way.
1: And, and in what uh, in what other business in the world is that okay? Why is it okay for us? Like that's the part that bothers me. You know, I think I might have told you this before, but a guy came up to me after one of, my, one of my seminars and he says to me, I'm so frustrated. He says, I've had five investors. I pitched my movie to five investors and every one of them has shut me down. He says, what am I doing wrong? And the first thing I said was, you had five investors, really? Because no, you didn't. You might have had one or maybe two, but you didn't have five. So let's right. start there. <laughs> All right. Because there's a lot of this going on out there. And three of those are P.S. All, All right. right. So you didn't have five. If that makes you feel any better, you didn't lose. Um, then – but if you even had one, like I said, what are you saying? Like – what, if five people walked away and said no, what are you saying? Because maybe something you're saying is making them say no. And I said, "Give me your elevator pitch. You pitch the story. I said sounds great. Now what? He was like, "Well, that's it. And I'm like, "That's it? <laughs> like that's it? Right. Yeah. And how much you need? Two point five million. Oh, oh really? Mm. Okay, that's cool. Um, so you have, you know, I said, "So, so do me a favor. And I love playing this for people. I said, do me a favor. I says, And I gave him my business card. I said, can you email me? He goes, yeah, yeah. I says, no, 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 not your script. I don't want your script. I said, I want you to email me your budget, the $2.5 million budget. And the guy's face just dropped. And I said, what's the matter? He says, oh, I don't have a budget. I said, you're already spoken to five investors asking for $2.5 million, and you don't, and have you don't even have a You don't even know if it actually is $2.5 like Or a a schedule.
2: Or a schedule. Or a cast.
1: Nothing. nothing. Or or a proposal or anything. He's literally pitching story to money people. And it doesn't compute. It's a disconnect. So what I do is I spend time educating people on how to speak to investors. Not just where to find them, how to find them, and what to do with them. But what what to say to them. Or more importantly, what not to say to them. And that way, whether I'm in the room or not, because more often than not, I'm not, I am, to help support them. They can keep up. Like, they're in it. They're not sitting all in the corner going, I hope Franco will close this guy. You know what I mean? They're like, this is my movie, man, and I'm here to sell it. You know? And, I, and I'm empowered because I know. I'm ready. Hit me with the questions. I've got the answers. And if I don't, this guy will help me. That's what you want to do. And that's why I'm saying partner. Partner with you know, with people who do have that base of experience and don't try to go it alone.
2: Um, I know this has been an epic conversation so far, and I know we could talk for another three or four hours, but I do want to ask you one last question because I think it's very uh, important that we talk about this. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the changing world of the film market? Because you and I have gone to AFM many times. I know you go to Cannes and all the you know to many other film markets. Uh this year alone, I think it's gonna be very interesting. They already MIPT has already got canceled. Um can I don't see how Cannes is gonna be able to go, which is insane to say out loud. But I know Berlin just is it just happened or is is finishing happening or something, but I heard I've heard through reports that it was pretty empty. And uh, the Chinese Chinese market, the guys were not there. So, yep. uh, where do you see before the coronavirus showed up? It was already starting to go. You know, it was starting to. Ch- the world has changed. How do you feel that the, these film markets are are going? to what place do you see these film markets going? Because it is built on a time of the seventies, eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. That's when the markets really we're kind of in their prime where now there's so many other options. I'm just curious on what part they are going to play in this new ecosystem that we're moving forward with. I think they still have a place in the, in the ecosystem uh, and there's things you can do in a market. You just can't do anywhere else, but I'd love to hear, right.
0: I'd love to hear your, your point of view. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: Yeah, it's because just like in, in any other industry, face-to-face you know, is, the only, is the best. Most or
2: mask-to-mask, mask mask-to-mask, mask-to-mask. Mask to oh, mask
1: mask, right. it's, it's, it's definitely the most productive way to conduct business, right? And so that's what the hype is around all of the markets, right? Because it's exciting. You get to travel around the world. You get to meet people. A lot of times you're meeting people that you see year after year, so you're reconnecting with people. That's one of the things that I love. Um, about about the market, particularly AFM because it's right here. And um, but I, I think that there's I think that there's been a uh, a lot of this stems from the first conversation we had about the purge that's about to take place around distribution because that's what the markets are for, right? It's buying and selling and 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 uh, promoting film. And so if the If the core of that is unstable, which it is, which is what I think the purge is going to at least address. I don't know if it's going to necessarily rectify it. Um, Then that foundation is is shaken. And then you add the coronavirus thing on top of it where people are going to just be gone. Nobody's going to show up. And I think that that's all going to contribute. I think it's going to go way bigger than just distributors having sales people having to, wake up uh, to a new reality of the way they have to conduct themselves in just in terms of their internal business models, but on a global, on a global scale. And I think it's going to be a hit. I think it's going to, I think the virus is going to be the biggest part of it. I think, like I said, next year or the year after that, it'll recover, but it'll never be the same. It's never going to be the same. And I think in a lot of ways that might be a good thing because you know, the, 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 the 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 traffic is down and the crowds are different. Like it's a different.
0: Oh, it's, it was a lot of
1: filmmakers.
2: It was a lot of filmmakers this year at AFM. A lot of filmmakers, as opposed to a lot of distributors.
1: Right, and here's the thing: there's a lot of filmmakers going to AFM for the wrong reason.
2: You right? mean selling story, selling their story?
1: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're walking in with pitch decks, trying to get distributors to come on board their project before. They even have any money, or they have any any. They haven't even done any development. Sometimes right. they have, right? So, so that's what's happening. In my opinion, it's turning into sort of a, you know, a money pit, you know, because and it's great. I love it because I get to go and see my friends every year, mm-hmm. but also I get to meet these people from all around the world. And a lot of the filmmakers that I work with uh, are from around the world, um, and I, and I, my relationship is built completely on a on a on a computer Skype. So it might be the one time in three years that I'm ever actually going to meet people that I've been working with mm-hmm. all along and be able to sit down and, and have a drink or a meal with. So from a social aspect, I think it's very a powerful place. But from a business perspective, it's just um, starting to, re- every year, it's just changing more and more and more. I mean, I do think that at NAFM specifically, it was probably a good move to kind of, uh, restrict who can come in because I know there were. I remember the years when crazy oh, yeah. people used to run through bikinis and trying to, you know, all that crazy stuff. And I do, I do think that that sort of took away, it was fun for a minute, you know, but I think it took away from the seriousness of the business at hand for serious filmmakers and buyers. Um, but I, I also think that uh, it's kind of gone a little too far now and people just, it's like you feel like you can't even move, you know, around there. So, so, um, uh, so I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know what the answer is. I do think that this business, this industry as a whole is extraordinarily resilient. We've gone through so much. I mean, all the way back to the writer strike and, you know, um, everything that- World War II. I mean, World War Two. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Is, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a resilient business. And like I say, I think that we've had enough lead time now as indie people- that we've established who we are out there in the world, I don't think we're going to have to we're, we're going to suffer any more or less than anybody else. Uh, but I do think it's the kind of thing that's just going to have to play itself out uh, and see what the repercussions are of this lack of physical attendance um, and try to re-maneuver a way to be able to continue to manage to do business uh, on the global market. In terms of sales and distribution, without necessarily getting on a plane and and going to France, you know,
2: right? I mean, that's nice, though. I mean, it's nice to go to France and to go to Cannes. It's 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 a fun time. That, that,
1: that one, that, that, and that's what's so that's what that's you know, what makes it such an exciting business to be in is to be able to travel around the world or the country and be able to explore all, all of this is literally your job. It's part of your your job, you know. So. Right. That That is great. And I think that that will re- return uh, after this thing settles out.
2: It's going to be just – it's going to transform like everything else. Like everything settles in yeah. after after VHS, after DVD, after streaming. Uh, oh. it, 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 there's just different evolutions and it's just happening faster and faster and faster and faster nowadays. Yeah, every
1: single I, we all thought it was going to be a catastrophe and life was over as we knew it and it was in a way but then it got better you know, or something new came along and and so I think we're we, we are all going to be fine I think the most important thing for everybody right now is to just really stay focused on the present, like what's in front of us the projects that we're working on and make the commitment to the thing that's right in front of us you know, I've got two or three right now you know, to be able to focus on, I've got projects coming in from different directions and and I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to shift the way I do things because what I'm doing has been working for me and for the workers. So I don't want to change that until or unless, and until I I be, it becomes a situation where I'm forced to in order to adapt to whatever this is, that's going to be coming down the road, you know?
2: Franco this has been an epic conversation as i knew it would be. Uh this is going to be a mandatory listen for anybody in the indie film hustle tribe and the film entrepreneur tribe because this is a wealth of information that's you you've spit out some amazing knowledge bombs today so i do truly appreciate it. Now i warn you my last thing i'm going to say be careful what you wish for. How do people find you sir? <laughs> <laughs> Your home, uh, your home, your home address and phone number would be
0: best.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Maybe I'll just take the computer and I'll show you my building. Or... Exactly. <laughs> um, for starters, uh, this year I, my Samaco films headquarters has moved. Very proud to say we are now on the lot at Los Angeles center studios, which is downtown LA, uh, great, great little independent, uh, film studio. So I'm very happy to be there. It's great to be on a lot, to be in that environment, be in that creative environment every single day. So that's our, where we physically are at L.A. Center Studios downtown. But the best way to reach me uh, is really just directly through email. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, there's two ways you can get to me. is my website, of course, which is just samikofilms.com. And I do recommend people go kind of take a look. They can see my all the films I've done, but also they can see the films that are in development and – and the, the projects that we're working on moving forward. Um, and my email, I'm happy to give it out. I always I, have.
2: I, I, be, be, I just be careful. Just be careful.
1: <laughs> I always do it. And, uh, um, my email is simple. It's just Franco at some okay. And, um, so by all means, people are welcome to either email me through the website, uh, or email me directly if they have any particular questions or anything, uh, they would like to run by me. If anybody's interested in the development program, I can send them information on that. Or uh, I do a one-on-one six-week course that they can uh, inquire about too. Most of that information is on the website. Um, but otherwise, they can just reach out to me and it might take me a moment to get back to people. So I ask them to be patient because you're absolutely right. I expect a good influx of of uh, emails and I welcome them. Sure. It just might take me some time to kind of get get my cut my way through them.
2: So then, this make sure you send when you email send your script, your pitch deck. Uh, do <laughs> not introduce <laughs> yourself and just tell them your story. That's that, that's that, that's the protocol. Yeah. That's the protocol.
1: Don't even say hello. Not even interested in hello. Just. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Franco, man, it has been an absolute pleasure. We have to do this at least more than once every two years uh, because things, yeah. are, things are changing so rapidly uh, and we are yeah. on the front line. So I do appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for uh, doing what you do and trying to help as many filmmakers as you are, man. Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it as well. Take care.
0: I want to thank Franco so much for coming on the show and dropping some major knowledge bombs on the Tribe today. Thank you again,
2: Franco. If you want to get a hold of Franco or links to anything we spoke about in this episode, please head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 259. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing, no matter what. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv.